pray. Amen. Well, if you will, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses uh, 13 through uh, 16. Uh, of course, uh, last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, we uh, handled verse 13 by itself, but it comes in the context uh, of verses 14 through 16. So I want to read it again as it matters for our discussion about the gospel and your suffering, or maybe even better, what we might would have uh, titled this sermon, because providentially y'all chose songs or hymns about Christian warfare, uh, how we are to live, how the Christian is to live in the midst of a battling world. How the Christian is to live in a battling world and how the gospel impacts the way that we live in this battling world that is full of suffering. And so as we've already asked for God's help, let us turn our attention again, reading verses 13 through 16, focusing our time together this evening on verses 14 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as also, as always better, to fill up the measure of their sins, the wrath has come upon them at last. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, because verse 13 is before our selected text in verses 14 through 16, and because it is in the original Greek one long-running sentence, we must remind ourselves what verse 13 is all about as it pertains to this letter to the Thessalonian churches written by the Apostle Paul. In verse 13, you remember that the Apostle Paul is focused upon the preaching of God's Word and how the preaching of God's Word has a deep impact for the people of God. Specifically, it makes us new creations. It conforms us into the image of God's Son, our Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, so that it might be received and accepted and obeyed. Remember, even as we uh, talked about uh, the last time we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we, we recognized how the Thessalonian believers got it so right that these preached sermons, if you will, this preached word that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles as they ministered here in Thessalonica, that they presented or spoke to the congregation, it was not accepted as mere words of men, but it was accepted as the Apostle Paul says, what it really is, the very word of God. And that preached word proved itself to be at work amongst the believers. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that 
that we must understand that as the preached word went out, it did not return to the apostles empty. For they saw fruit of the Holy Spirit working within the congregation as they imitated Paul and as they imitated the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it was at this moment with this new heart, this new creation in which these Thessalonian believers were, they realized that life was not about going their own way, but it was about going the ways of the Lord. I think it was Pastor Don a couple of weeks ago as we were gathering for men's Bible study on Tuesday morning uh, that he referenced that song uh, by Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way. That's a pagan song. I love Frank Sinatra, particularly his Christmas albums. Nobody sings, you know, jingle bells quite like he does. But when it comes to that song, I Did It My Way, that is the mantra, the theme of a sinful heart. And the Thessalonian believers realize at this point that they cannot go their own way, but they must live for the glory of God. That as God reveals Himself and as God speaks through His gospel preached, the apostles have the authority to call you to a life of repentance, a life that is edifying, a life that is obeying. And so you might say that the, the Thessalonian believers, uh, they received the Word of God reverently. But I think the Puritans would be better served here that they received the Word experientially. That they understood that the Word of God would change their experience, their, their life. The condition of belonging to Christ is the effective work of the Bible being lived out amongst the believers. You might remember even what uh, James, the brother of Jesus, says, is that real faith works. And here it is in, in, in verses 14 through 16 that, that the Apostle Paul, essentially, he begins to emphasize or focus upon one of the effective workings of the Holy Spirit through the preached Word, this outworking of the received Word as he talks about this idea of suffering or or tribulation. If you let your eyes fall back to verse 14, and I hope you'll keep your Bibles open, we're going to actually flip over to the second psalm here in just a little while. But if you look back at verse 14... The Apostle Paul introduces again this idea of imitation. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul loves this idea of unity. He loves this idea of communion of the saints. He loves this idea of the visible church. He'll actually spend all of his letter to the church at Ephesus talking about how we are one in Christ Jesus. And he's not talking about oneness within one local congregation. He's talking about a oneness as we profess together with the Apostles' Creed in one holy, catholic, or universal, apostolic church. 
And, and so he brings this idea of unity to these believers. You are united in the faith, even with the churches in Judea, but you notice what is uniting them. It's this idea of suffering. Now, you would, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that, that the Apostle Paul would say that you are united in the faith. Of course, that is true. Again, like I've already just said, he will spend all of, you know, all of his letter to Ephesus, uh, the great Ephesian letter, talking about how the gospel, how our faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism makes us one people. And yet it's here that he emphasizes, he focuses upon this idea that our unity, our unity in tribulation shows the unity of our faith. You think about that for a minute. That's what one commentator actually wrote. Such unity in tribulation showed the unity of their faith. They suffered like the churches in Judea. And you think about it. Paul actually mentions the suffering in which these churches in Judea experienced. Not only did they kill the Lord Jesus and the prophets, of course talking about those unbelieving and hardened and hate-filled Jews, but they drove us out. You remember when we talked about this at the very beginning as we were introducing this letter, it was the idea that Paul and the apostles have been driven out in the midst of the night so that they would not be harmed or killed. And they even uh, mutilized, beat Jason in the streets for trying to hide the apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles. They forced us out and they hindered the speaking. If you look there in verse 16, they hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. What the Apostle Paul is saying is they butted up against the preaching of the gospel to the Gentile people. The Jews didn't want any part of the Gentiles hearing the good news of great joy for all the peoples. They simply wanted Paul and the apostles to be quiet so that they would not know the sins in which the Jews had committed by putting the prophets and the Lord Jesus to death, It was these same people, the Apostle Paul says, who has caused the, the Thessalonian believers to suffer. And he says, in this suffering you have imitated, you have imitated the faithful believers in the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. What is the Apostle Paul speaking of? What are they imitating? It's that... It's an imitation of faithfulness despite the suffering. It's an imitation of joy despite the suffering. It's an imitation, I think, even of progress despite the suffering. You know, Mr. Coble chose 570, faith of our fathers. You, you even notice it's, it's so providential that we pick these two hymns. Because you look at the, the end right before the refrain of of verse 1, they're in faith of our fathers. And, you, and it reminds you that we hear God's glorious word and it reminds us that there have been believers who have gone before us, who have fought the same fight that we are fighting. And, and even verse 2, they were blessed for suffering in the name of Christ and we like them shall be blessed when we suffer for the name of Christ as well. It's this idea of faithfulness. 
It's this idea of joy. It's this idea of progress, isn't it? We know something about that progress. You remember as we journey through the Acts narrative together on Sunday evenings, it is suffering after suffering after suffering that's experienced by the early church and by the apostles. And yet, the number of the church continued to increase exponentially as the Lord gave success to the preached Word. The Lord gave success to the apostles' ministry as they committed themselves to the preaching of the Word, the prayers of the people, and the sacraments, the same ordinary means of grace that we are committed to even today at First Presbyterian Church. You remember it's even the stoning of Stephen that begins to, to spread the Gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth just as Jesus had promised in the Great Commission that's recorded for us in the first chapter, or re-recorded for us in the first chapter of Acts. So, so as Paul begins to, begins to mention that you are suffering alongside of your brothers and sisters in Christ, he's saying you have been imitators of these believers in the churches of Christ Jesus in Judea, and immediately he is, he is yoking these young believers in Thessalonica with the fathers of the faith that have gone before them. You know, with the apostles that followed Jesus. With Stephen, the holy deacon, the Holy Spirit-filled deacon who was stoned for his faith. He says, you have proved yourself faithful. You have proved yourself full of joy despite the circumstances that can only be found in Christ Jesus. And it has not hindered the progress of the Word bearing fruit here in Thessalonica. Because remember, he is celebrating in verse 13. This is why the context matters. He's celebrating. He's thanking God constantly, it says. Or without ceasing, your translation might say, that you have received the word which you heard from us and it is bearing fruit. You are filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is doing a good work here amongst you even though you are suffering because you have proved yourself faithful just as the churches before you. We have not been surprised. It's almost as if Paul is saying of the blessed assurance that you have in the gospel. You know, that's one of the, the, the hymns that came to mind as I was uh, thinking about and writing uh, for this sermon. This idea of counting it all joy in the midst of your suffering. Why can we consider suffering a joy? It's because it directly shows us that we are connected to Christ. Don't be surprised, Jesus says, when the world hates you because they first hated me. Don't be surprised when you suffer at the hands of unbelievers who have hard hearts because they have lashed out against me. They seek to put me to death. Count it all joy, believers, because this, this yoke of suffering, this, this idea of unity in tribulation showing the unity of our faith, shows that not only are we united in the faith of our fathers, but we're united in the gospel of Jesus Christ to He Himself. And so you think about this idea of blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You know, it's 
this idea that we sang about and stand up, stand up for Jesus. I was not even planning on mentioning these, these hymns, but as we were singing it, I was thinking it, thinking this fits so beautifully. From victory unto victory, his army he shall lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. What is the beauty of our unity in Christ in the midst of our suffering? It's that there's no sting in death. There's no sting in your suffering because Christ Jesus has led us unto victory as He defeats the grave because the pangs of death could not hold Him. And so here it is, beloved, that this stands before us as a reminder that we should not be surprised by our suffering. We should not be surprised by our suffering because the saints who have gone before us have suffered. Jesus Christ Himself has suffered. That unity in suffering or that unity in tribulation shows the unity of our faith. And you say, well, why are we suffering? Why did Jesus suffer? Why did the apostles suffer? Why did these believers in Thessalonica suffer? And I think it's because hard hearts under the preached Word of God, will lash out. I think that's very clear from the Scriptures. Hard hearts under the preached Word will lash out. As the Pharisees and the religious leaders, as they hear Christ preach through His earthly ministry, what is their response? They continue to harden their hearts and they continue to hate Jesus. You think about the sermons in which the prophets of Elijah and Elisha have preached during our Sunday morning series. What has been the response of the idol worshipers and those unbelieving Jews that that Elijah and Elisha have confronted? They have continued to harden their hearts and they have hated the prophets. You know, I understand that that the scene in which we expounded upon a couple of weeks ago as as the she-bear mauls the the teenage boys as they pick upon the prophet Elisha. I know that is a hard scene to comprehend, but but it shows you, doesn't it? It shows you not only will there be will there be suffering for the people of God, not only does it show us that there will be hate filled hearts against the people of God and the message of God, but there's also victory over those hardened and hate-filled hearts as Christ judges His enemies and pours out His wrath upon them, giving us His victory. And so you think about the stories in which we hear throughout the Gospel. You think about the stories that we hear throughout the Old Testament. You think about those hard scenes in which the Lord God Almighty is commanding His people to put to slaughter all the people and all the things in these pagan countries. Why is He doing such a thing? Because He can give them victory over sin and over death and over the evil one, so that He can give us the victory over those who rage against us and plot against our Lord and His people. You know, here it is. Uh, I want to flip over to to Psalm 2. If you have Bibles open still, I would invite you to flip over there with me to Psalm 2. 
probably one of my favorite psalms because I love the scene of, of God Almighty sitting upon His throne and chuckling at the plotting and the raging of the, of the unbelievers because it's so in vain. But think about the words here. Think about the strong language that's, that's before us here in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? You know, I think that if we were to strike at, or, or to scratch at, rather, uh, the original Hebrew here, it's this idea of, and, and maybe your translation has uh, a, little, a little marker there that gives you some, some emphasis of what's being said, but it's this idea of noisily assembling is literally what the, what the definition is. It's this idea, it's this picture of an uncontrollable rage. The, 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 the throwing pots and pans and the throwing of the coffee mugs out of pure frustration and anger. Why do they rage against our God? His Word is going out. And it's causing increase. That's why they're raging. It's that picture that the Apostle Paul paints for us in Colossians chapter 1. The kingdom of God is always bearing fruit and it's always increasing. Therefore, the nations are raging against our God and His people. Because no matter what they do, no matter what they plot, it's all in vain. It's meaningless. It proves to fail time and time and time again, even when it seems as their best efforts have won. You know, we're coming up on the Easter season. You know, we were talking about this past Wednesday night as we were talking about spiritual warfare, this idea that Satan is not omniscient. He does not know all things. And so you think of the evil one there as he sees Christ and he sees Christ breathe his last and he sees Christ buried in the tomb. It seems as if he has won. His plotting has finally paid off. And I can imagine he rejoices for three days. But then on that first resurrection Sunday morning, his plotting, his raging proves itself again to be in vain. Why do the nations raise and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice what it is that, that, that the psalm is saying here. Let us burst their bonds apart. Well, who are they raging against? The Lord Yahweh and His anointed talking about Christ. Let us burst their bonds apart. It was a commentator that says, you want to know how vain and hopeless and fruitless their plotting is? They are plotting to burst apart the bonds of our triune God. And they plot in vain. Let us cast away their cords, their authority from us. This sovereign God. Let us ensure that they have no sovereignty, no power over us. But He who sits in the heavens laughs. Or, or better yet, He chuckles. The Lord holds them in derision and then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have given my son the throne. 
And there's nothing you can do about it. I know that I've used this illustration before as I talked about Psalm 2, but one of my favorite things to do uh, as, I'm, as I'm picking with the kids is, is when they want something, fruit snacks, candy, anything of the sort, you know, you, you, know, you hold it. I know it's, I, I, I get it. It's kind of mean. But you hold it above their head, and they, they jump, and they jump, and they jump, and they can't get it, and you just sit there and you chuckle at them. Because you know no matter what they do, they can't get to it. That is, that is the chuckle of God as He sees the, the earthly rulers taking counsel together, plotting in vain because He knows that no matter what they do, it will be hopeless. And why is it hopeless? It's because the Lord, God Almighty, Yahweh Himself, has put King Jesus upon the throne and He has given Him the nations. And He has given Him the seat of judgment against His enemies. And so this idea of joy in the midst of suffering, this idea of the Gospel in the midst of suffering, it, it, is, it is all about this idea that our Lord King Jesus sits upon the throne. Therefore, this suffering will only be but for a moment. And, and our enemies and those who seek to persecute us those who rage against us and plot against our Lord and His people, His church, it will be in vain because King Jesus sits upon the throne and He will pour out His wrath upon the people. In fact, that's exactly what is being talked about here in the last couple of words of verse 16. But wrath has come upon them at last. But wrath has come upon them at last. Admittedly, this is a, a difficult phrase, and, 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 and even commentators are a little, are a little split on, on what this exactly means. Of course, it is pushing us to the day of the Lord where, where we are vindicated as God's people and God's enemies are cast into the eternal flames of hell to face the wrath of God for all eternity. I think that yes, it is pushing us there. But at the same time, you have to understand that he speaks here in a very present, a very present way. And I agree with some of the greatest commentators as, as this is almost Paul speaking in prophecy about the, the destruction of the temple in, in 70 A.D. You have, to, you have to see here that, that, of course, he is talking about the Jews that have put the people under persecution. It's the, it's the Jews that have, uh, that, have, that have caused so much tribulation for this people of God in Thessalonica. And this wrath that has come upon them at last is this idea that the Lord has removed His Spirit from them. You're reminded what the Old Testament temple is supposed to remind you of or is supposed to signify. It's this, it's this idea that here is the dwelling place, the house of the Lord. And so even in exile, as the temple is destroyed, it's this idea that in the promised land, the promised dwelling place of the Lord has been 
removed. The presence of the Lord has been removed from His people, meaning that the favor of their God has been removed. And so they are in exile in these pagan lands. It's this idea that now, as the, the temples again destroyed in 70 A.D., it's as if the Lord has turned over the Jews to their unbelief and their sin. It is a sobering picture that, that Paul is painting here at the end of verse 16. They have hindered the preaching of the gospel to go out to the Gentiles. Therefore, because of their hard hearts, because of their plotting and raging against God and His church, He is now removing His Spirit. He, he is now removing His Spirit and letting the sins of the people take over. And you think, well, Matt, that is hard language. It's the same language that's used in Romans chapter 1 where Paul writes that, that the Lord God Almighty turns these people who seek to continue their sins and seek to worship the gifts rather than the giver. He turns them over to their sinful desires of the flesh. So the Lord is still doing those very same things even today. And He's even given the keys of the kingdom, keys of the church to the elders to signify this turning over to sin in, in the matters of church discipline. Again, these are some hard things to understand, but if you know the pattern that's set aside there in Matthew chapter 18... When a brother has sinned against another brother or a sister in Christ has sinned against another sister in Christ, they are to go one-on-one to that brother or that sister and they are to confront that sin. And if the sinner will, will not listen, he is to grab or she is to grab two or more other believers and they are to go and confront the sinner and ask them to repent of their sin. And if they still won't repent, if they still won't hear, it says, then you go to the church. You go to the elders, and the elders now handle the church discipline as they have been given the keys to the kingdom. And the church now demands repentance. And yet if they continue in their sin, what does the Apostle Paul tell us in Corinthians? That you let them go. You turn them over to their sinful desires. Essentially, you treat them as an unbeliever and you excommunicate them from the church as a visible representation that they do not belong to us. It's the same thing that's going on here with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's this visual reminder that they do not belong these hardened, hate-filled, these hate-filled people who, who seek to do harm to the church, what the Apostle John will call antichrists in his first letter. Those who were once saying they were with us and now they have ridiculed us. They have turned their back on us and they have derided God. They were never a part of us. Therefore, we turn them over to their sins and their sinful desires. And we stand in the victory of Christ Jesus. As we see the Thessalonian believers being willing to suffer for Christ, they understand first and foremost that it's no surprise that they might suffer. But they also know 
that the gospel gives victory over our suffering and over those who will rage and plot against us. And He even gives us the ability to say to those who cause us to suffer here within the church, you were never a part of us. Go out into your sin. You are now an unbeliever in our eyes. And you need the Gospel so that you might have that same joy of salvation, that same assurance of salvation that we also have. Hard text before us in verses 14 and through 16, but may the Lord use it to build His kingdom here amongst us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to this Your Word. And we pray, O Lord, that You would give us a real understanding of the experience of the Gospel that each and every one of us lives. That as Your Word makes an impact here within our own hearts, as it conforms us into Thy image, as we walk closely with Thee, let us know that the world will hate us. And even enemies within the own people of God, as we see here with the Jews deriding uh, the church, those who seem to be amongst us, there will be some who are not with us. And Father, we pray that, that as we labor and as we suffer for Thy kingdom, Father, as we walk this pilgrim journey to a, to a new heavens and a new earth, let us first be reminded of the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. And yet also, let us have a real burning desire despite the seasons of hardship. Let us have a gospel message of joy, of salvation for all who will believe on our lips. Lord, take this word. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement for thy glory and thy glory alone. Use this, O Lord, to make us imitators of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.